Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Virtual IBD Clinic Surgical and Pharmacological Therapeutics is provided by RMEI Medical Education LLC and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And this activity is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Coherus Biosciences, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, my name is Jenny Stock. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine and the Director of Clinical Care at the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at UCLA in Los Angeles. In this CME activity, I will be discussing the clinical case of a patient with inflammatory bowel disease, as well as principles and guidelines for disease man management and indications for surgery. So this is our patient case. This is Jack. He's a 23-year-old college student with Crohn's disease. He initially presented with persistent non-bloody diarrhea, abdominal cramps, weight loss, and pain with defecation. A presentation, his physical exam was remarkable for oral aptus ulcers, diffuse abdominal tenderness, perianal skin tags, and rectal tenderness with a visible anal ulcer. His initial colonoscopy revealed perianal skin tags and multiple ulcers in the anus, rectum, and sigmoid and descending colon. The biopsy of the left colon revealed patchy, severe, chronic active colitis with rare, poorly formed, non-necrotizing granuloma. Based on the results of Jack's colonoscopy and the clinical presentation, he was diagnosed with moderate to severe Crohn's disease, and he was initially treated with prednisone, 40 milligrams a day, and azathioprine, 150 milligrams a day. A few months after his initial diagnosis, Jack was seen in the emergency department for severe perianal pain and purulent drainage from his rectum. An MRI demonstrated a perianal abscess, and he was discharged from the emergency department on oral antibiotics and with instructions to meet with a surgeon in one week. Unfortunately, his pain persisted and increased. So he presented for further evaluation and treatment. During this follow-up visit, Jack had developed symptoms consistent with perianal complications of Crohn's disease. He is advised that he will need an exam under anesthesia in order to further evaluate his symptoms. An anorectal exam under anesthesia revealed a large perianal abscess and fistula. And this abscess was surgically drained and aceton was placed in the fistula tract. So this is our challenge question for our patient, Jack. Which of the treatment options is appropriate for Jack at this time? A, would you continue treatment with prednisone at 40 milligrams a day and azathioprine at 150 milligrams a day? B, increase the prednisone to 60 milligrams a day. C, continue the azathioprine and add infliximab or D, remove the ceton after one week. So the correct answer is C, which is to continue the azathioprine and add infliximab. So continuing treatment with azathioprine and prednisone is not an option since Jack's disease is progressing on that therapy and increasing the dose of prednisone may worsen Jack's existing infection, his rectal abscess. So continuing azathioprine and adding infliximab is an option for Jack. Combining immunomodulator therapy with anti-TNF therapy has demonstrated efficacy in fistulizing Crohn's disease. Ceton placement significantly improves the rate and duration of fistula response in Crohn's disease patients subsequently treated with infliximab, so the ceton should not be removed within a week. So to summarize our case, Jack has severe Crohn's disease that is complicated with a perianal abscess and fistula requiring surgical drainage and ceton placement. This impacts current treatment decisions. Jack is made aware of the detrimental effects of corticosteroids, especially with an abscess, and the need for the avoidance of this medication for in the long term. So long-term complications of corticosteroids can include bone loss, elevated blood sugars, um, elevated blood pressure, 
The Pentagon will be tapered as quickly as possible. The azathioprine is continued at 150 milligrams a day, and infliximab is started at a standard dose uh, of five mg per kg at zero, two, and six weeks. By the second infliximab dose, Jack is feeling better, and his abdominal pain is improved, and his bowel movements are more formed. He's only having two bowel movements a day. Um, his appetite is improving, and, uh, and he's gaining weight. So another important point to remember with perianal Crohn's disease is that it's important to evaluate this patient carefully prior to the initiation of treatment. And this includes a good MRI pelvis, which he did have, to evaluate the fistula tract. And an exam under anesthesia with any intervention required, such as drainage of abscess with or without ketone placement. Um, perianal fistula management, it's a multidisciplinary effort, so usually involves our colorectal surgical colleagues. So we're going to move on. And I'd like to discuss some important considerations in the management of both severe Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So let's start by talking about the natural history of Crohn's disease. For the majority of people, Crohn's disease will present as an inflammatory phenotype. So that usually presents as symptoms of diarrhea, abdominal pain, and possibly some weight loss. However, with ongoing inflammatory activity that is uncontrolled, there can be series of flares and inflammatory episodes that contribute to overall bowel damage. And over time, strictures and fistulas can develop. Within one year of diagnosis, roughly 10 to 15% of Crohn's disease patients may require surgery, and this percentage is higher if we look 20 to 25 years out after initial diagnosis. Ideally, soon after diagnosis, there is a sweet spot for intervention that can change the natural history of the disease and prevent the inflammatory episodes that contribute to the formation of strictures and fistulas and abscesses and potentially decrease that need for surgery in the future. We're hoping to heal the bowel and not just treat the symptoms. So we know that patient's symptoms can, uh, can fluctuate. So our goal is not only to improve the symptoms and quality of life of our patients in the short term, but also to achieve mucosal healing and prevent bowel damage. Crohn's disease is tricky since the symptoms don't always correlate well with endoscopic activity. It's not uncommon for someone to present with no symptoms but have significant activity on imaging or colonoscopy. And likewise, we can see the opposite where symptoms can be very active, but there's very little activity endoscopically with good mucosal healing. So the treatment strategy would be different in both scenarios. So it is important to obtain objective evidence of disease activity in Crohn's disease. Regardless of the symptoms, though, we want to think about risk stratification uh, as some of our patients may be at higher risk for more aggressive Crohn's disease than others. Ultimately, this risk profile will help contribute to how I counsel the patient and make recommendations for treatment. So the patient has more moderate to high risk features, including younger age of disease with extensive anatomic involvement, perianal and or severe rectal disease with presence of deep ulcers and strictures or penetrating behavior, I will likely consider biologic therapy sooner than in those who present with more low risk features. And we know from this landmark SONIC trial that for patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease, so this is our higher risk patient who are biologic naive, that the combination therapy with azathioprine and infliximab is more effective in achieving a corticosteroid-free clinical remission than infliximab monotherapy alone and azathioprine alone. That is why in our patient case scenario, we recommend Jack to start on infliximab and azathioprine for his perianal fistulizing Crohn's disease rather than azathioprine monotherapy or infliximab monotherapy. So as we think about as a whole, our strategy for Crohn's disease, it's moved away, as I mentioned, from focusing on just the short-term symptom response. 
While symptom response is important, it is also important to consider intermediate, intermediate targets like symptom remission, normalization of CRP, and decreases in calprotectin, as well as normal growth in children, but also more long-term targets like endoscopic healing, normalized quality of life, and absence of disability. This is called a treat-to-target approach. In this treat-to-target algorithm, the primary target for treatment should be absence of endoscopic ulceration. After starting a new therapy, patients should be assessed every six months and treatment should be optimized, switched, or added until disappearance of ulceration. Once mucosal healing has occurred, the treatment should be continued, and mucosal healing should be re-evaluated every one to two years. There's an important prospective study called the COM trial evaluating this concept, this treat-to-target strategy. So this is an open-label multi-center phase three study in Europe and Canada where patients first received a steroid taper for active Crohn's disease, and then were randomized to two different management arms. So in the conventional treatment arm, uh, treatment intensification was based only on symptoms um, or steroid usage. And then in the treat-to-target arm, so the type control arm, treatment intensi intensification was not only based on symptoms or steroid use, but also on CRP or fecal calprotectin levels. The primary endpoint was endoscopic remission at week 48. The study visits occurred every 12 weeks with labs that um, were done one week prior. And for each study arm, the need for treatment intensification was assessed at every visit uh, according to pre-specified uh, pre criteria. And that intensification sequence was uh, no treatment. And if there were more uh, objective criteria, they would uh, move on to adalimumab every other week. And if they needed to have further treatment, adalimumab weekly. And lastly, um, if there was a criteria for needing further treatment, it would be adalimumab plus azathioprine. So what you can see here is that significantly more patients in the tight control group, uh, so 45.9% achieved that primary endpoint of mucosal healing compared with the clinical management group. So that's our uh, conventional management treatment group at 30.3% at 48 weeks. And we can also see that significantly more patients also achieved a biologic remission, which is a combination of reduced CRP and calprotectin with mucosal healing and deep remission, which is a combination of steroid-free remission and mucosal healing with no deep ulcers in that tight control group. And then there's some follow-up studies to this that also uh, show the benefits of treat-to-target management. This is data presenting two-year follow-up, looking at Crohn's disease-related hospitalizations, Crohn's disease-related surgeries, and Crohn's disease-related hospitalizations or serious complications. And what you can see here is that the rate of Crohn's disease-related hospitalizations were significantly lower in the treat-to-target group compared with the events in the conventional management group. Um, the rate of surgical uh, procedures, the Crohn's disease-related surgical procedures and Crohn's disease-related hospitalizations or serious complications were not significantly different between the two groups. This could be related to the relatively short duration of follow-up, so we'll be seeing future follow-up data to this. Um, but seeing that decrease in Crohn's disease-related hospitalizations itself speaks to the potential long-term benefit of a treat-to-target approach. So we have mainly focused on uh, the Crohn's disease progressive nature, but ulcerative colitis is also a progressive disease. Patients with ulcerative colitis have a 30% risk of needing a colectomy. And patients with histologic inflammation for over eight years, so more than just proctitis, have an increased risk of colon dysplasia as well. Chronic inflammation in the left colon can also lead to scarring lead pipe colon, which is associated with looser stools and increased frequency. So a treat-to-target approach is likely also relevant for ulcerative colitis as well. Let's shift gears and talk about treatment options in moderate to severe Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. 
So there are several induction and long-term treatment options that can be considered for patients like Jack with severe Crohn's disease. The ACG 2018 guidelines for Crohn's disease recommends treatment with the biologic with or without an immunomodulator. The choices for approved anti-TNF biologics for Crohn's disease include infliximab, adalimumab, sertolizumab pegol, and biosimilars. Betalizumab is the recommended anti-integrant biologic, and ustekinumab, an IL-12 and IL-23 inhibiting biologic is also an option. More recently, rizinkizumab, an IL-23 inhibitor biologic was also approved for Crohn's disease. The recommended immunomodulators are azathioprine, 6 purine, or methotrexate, which are typically used in combination therapy. Combination therapy of anti-TNF with an immunomodulator is more effective than monotherapy with either agent, as had been shown earlier with the SONIC trial. Similar to Crohn's disease, there are several treatment options for patients with severe ulcerative colitis at high risk of requiring a colectomy. The 2020 AGA guidelines for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis recommend the early use of biologic agents, such as anti-TNF agents like infliximab, adalimumab, or golanimumab, or anti-integrant therapy like vedolizumab, or anti-IL-12, IL-23 agents like usikinumab. Small molecule therapy like Janus kinase inhibitors um, as topacitinib are also approved. More recently, a selective JAK1 inhibitor, upadacitinib, is also available uh, for treatment for ulcerative colitis. With recent FDA changes, JAK inhibitors can only be used after anti-TNF failure. Also, another small molecule therapy, a syncosine 1-phosphate modulator, Ozanamod, was recently approved for ulcerative colitis. Monotherapy as maintenance with thiopurine, such as azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine, can be used, but methotrexate is not recommended as monotherapy. We are going to briefly touch upon uh, therapeutic drug monitoring. We have the ability to measure drug metabolites with our thiopurines and drug levels with several of our biologic agents. There are two types of therapeutic drug monitoring, reactive monitoring when patients do not respond to therapy or have lost response. It is shown to improve clinical care and be cost-effective. Proactive monitoring is assessing drug levels during induction or maintenance therapy or before withdrawing therapy in patients with an appropriate clinical response and who are feeling well. Retrospective data do show some benefit of practicing therapeutic drug monitoring on clinical outcomes in patients. However, prospective data are more controversial. So the AGA has made several recommendations regarding therapeutic drug monitoring for our thiopurines, including azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine. Prior to starting the thiopurine, we should be doing a routine thiopurine methyltransferase, so TPMT test, to see how the patients will metabolize the drug and to see if it will be safe to consider the medication. Some patients have low or high TPMT activity, and we sometimes need to consider adjusting the medication or not starting it at all, depending on that activity. So for adults already on a thiopurine, if the IBD appears to be active or if the patient is having an adverse effect, the AGA has recommended reactive testing and checking thiopurine metabolites. But the AGA does not recommend routine thiopurine monitoring in patients that um, have quiescent IBD or doing well with their IBD. So with anti-TNF agents, drug monitoring, as I mentioned earlier, is somewhat controversial. The AGA recommends that patients with active IBD treated with an anti-TNF agent can utilize reactive therapeutic drug monitoring to assist in management. However, benefits of that proactive monitoring are less established. So if more data, the guidelines may be updated in the future. It's also unclear what barriers are encountered with respect to proactive drug monitoring with respect to insurance and cost. So we'll have more information about that hopefully in the future. So let's go back to our case. So Jack had Crohn's colitis with perianal disease and was treated with infliximab 5 milligrams per kilogram every eight weeks and azathioprine 150 milligrams uh, a day. 
and has been doing well for the last three years. The Seton fell out one year ago and he's had no further problems with the fistula. And during this visit though, he's complaining of abdominal bloating and right lower quadrant pain a few hours after eating, especially after ingesting popcorn or nuts. Jack states that this is very different from the way that his Crohn's felt a few years ago when he was sick. So a CT enterography is performed and there is a six centimeter stricture at the ileum. There's also a dilation of the small bowel above the stricture. A colonoscopy confirms that there is a stricture and the scope cannot be passed into the ileum. So based on these findings, Jack undergoes an ileocolonic resection uh, with an ileocolonic anastomosis. So this is a challenge question. Which of the following is an approach to managing the patient who is at high risk for post-operative recurrence of Crohn's disease? A, is it to prescribe no medication and repeat colonoscopy 24 months post-operatively? B, to prescribe anti-TNF therapy and repeat the colonoscopy six to 12 months post-operatively? C, to prescribe mesalamine and repeat colonoscopy 12 months post-operatively? Or D, to prescribe six mercaptopurine and repeat the colonoscopy 18 months post-operatively? The correct answer here is B. Um, so it's to prescribe um, anti-TNF therapy and repeat the colonoscopy six to 12 months postoperatively. So some patients are at higher risk for Crohn's recurrence than others. And we'll go over this later in, the, in, the, in a few other, in the few slides coming uh, in, in the future. So in those patients, we would start postoperative therapy relatively soon after surgery. So it's very important to perform the colonoscopy six to 12 months out after surgery regardless of when we're starting the treatment um, to evaluate for postoperative recurrence. So before we go into uh, postoperative recurrence, let's talk a little bit about the surgical options for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, so there are overall indications for operative management for inflammatory bowel disease. An acute complication in ulcerative colitis would be toxic megacolon. This is a clinical diagnosis. You have to have a very high clinical suspicion for toxic megacolon. Um, when the colon's already very dilated, this might be late, so you know, patients have to um, be aware of this ahead of time um, and try to catch it soon. Other acute complications include hemorrhage, acute obstruction that is not resolving in perforation. And a lot of patients will also be going to the OR for more chronic complications as well and medically refractory disease that is not responding to multiple biologics or immunosuppressants would be one of those. Recurrent abdominal abscesses, chronic small bowel or large bowel stricturing disease, um, clinically symptomatic enteroenteric fistula, enterovesicular fistula, uh, neoplasia or growth retardation in children due to the severity of disease are all examples of chronic complications of disease. So some of the more common surgeries for Crohn's disease include strictureplasty, and so this is a surgical procedure to repair a stricture by widening the narrowed areas without removing a portion of the intestine. For someone with multiple small bowel strictures throughout the small bowel, this could be an appropriate surgery to prevent a lengthy resection. Um, and we briefly touched upon seton placement with our place of their patient Jack. Jack had a seton placed for perianal disease. A seton is a surgical material that's left in uh, fistula to promote drainage of fluid and help the fistula tract to heal. So our patient Jack also had ileal disease that was not clearly present on his initial presentation. He eventually developed a stricture and required an ileocolic resection. This is where the cecum and distal portion of the ileum is resected, and a connection is created between the colon and ileum. Another common surgery for Crohn's disease that the colon is involved is an ileorectal anastomosis, where the small bowel is connected to the rectum if there's rectal sparing, which is commonly seen in Crohn's disease with the colon. So let's go back to our challenge question about postoperative recurrence. Once a patient with Crohn's disease has a surgical resection, it is not a cure and we do need to monitor for recurrence. Histologic recurrence can occur as early as one week after intestinal resection 
An endoscopic recurrence can occur in about 70 to 90% of patients within one year of surgery. Clinical recurrence occurs in 30% of patients within three years of surgery and 60% of patients within 10 years of surgery. So since endoscopic and histologic recurrence appear to occur before symptoms, waiting for symptoms to occur may be too late to intervene. So in a prospective cohort follow-up study of patients with Crohn's disease, 73% of patients had endoscopic recurrence at one year, and, but only 20% had symptoms within one year of surgery. Uh, the rest year score um, assessed that six to 12 months predicts recurrence following surgery. So patients with a rough year score of I0 or I1 have less than 10% clinical recurrence rate at 10 years, while patients with a rough year score of I2 um, or greater have a clinical recurrence rate of 20%. Uh, or higher at five years. And uh, patients with uh, rec sorry, rec score of I3 or I4 have a 50 to 100% uh, clinical occurrence rate with high rates of reoperation. The next question is when do we need to start people on therapy and are there certain patients that are at higher risk for occurrence than others? So this is where risk stratification comes in. So we can classify patients as being at low or high risk for clinical recurrence and adapt the post-operative medical therapy accordingly. And we currently define the risk of clinical recurrence as low if a patient has long-standing Crohn's disease um, and if this is their first surgery uh, for a very short stricture. But if a patient has, um, is considered higher risk if they have you know, penetrating disease that's present or if the patient is young at presentation or if there is a recurrent surgery for Crohn's disease or if this, the patient is a smoker. So they'll have a consider they're considered a higher risk for post-operative recurrence. So one multicenter uh, trial uh, that evaluated the benefit of using anti-TNF therapy specifically in Fluxnab in the post-operative setting is the PREVENT study. This was a multicenter prospective study of 297 patients with Crohn's disease who had undergone ileocolonic resection within 45 days before randomization to Influxnab or placebo. Although they did not hit their primary endpoint of clinical recurrence, there was significantly lower endoscopic recurrence with only 30%. Uh, versus 60% endoscopic recurrence in the infliximab arm versus the placebo arm. And the reason they did not hit that clinical recurrence rate goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that clinical recurrence rates are low early on, and symptoms usually occur after endoscopic recurrence sets in. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit now about um, surgery for ulcerative colitis. So in the setting of therapy for refractory ulcerative colitis or ulcerative colitis with neoplasia, a total abdominal colectomy with an ileal anal pouch anastomosis should be performed. And this is usually performed as a total abdominal colectomy with ileal anal pouch over three steps. So in the first step, they remove the entire colon. They usually leave a small segment of rectum behind, and this is usually because that rectum has a lot of inflammation at the time of surgery. And the thought is that creating the connection later would be safer after the inflammation cools down and the patient is off of steroids for a while. So in the second stage, the rectum is removed and the J pouch is created from the small bowel, and there is a connection created between a small, uh, small segment of the, uh, the very small segment of the rectum left and then a J pouch. So the surgeon keeps a diverting ileostomy to allow the anastomosis to heal and mature. And the third surgery was, is where the ileostomy is taken down. So patients usually do quite well with the surgery and it can be life-saving in some cases. Um, so when we look at complication rates for ileal pouch anastomoses, there can be some early and long-term complications. Small bowel obstruction, anastomotic stricture, and pouch leakage can be early complications that can be managed perioperatively. When we look at late complications, there can be decreased fecundity. Um, this is different than fertility. Fecundity means that there may be a 
there's a decreased chance that someone can get pregnant per cycle, but this can be due to the scarring around the fallopian tubes during the surgery. But patients with pouches have done very well with IVF, so they, their fertility is not affected. Pouchitis can occur in up to 50%. However, the vast majority of patients can be treated with short courses of antibiotics, and pouch failure rate is generally low. So in this long-term study looking at clinical outcomes in patients with um, ileoanal uh, pouch anastomoses, this is uh, in this review of eight, eight, 1,885 uh, operations over 20 years. This is from a prospective database looking at complications and functional outcomes and quality of life measures following surgery. The overall rate of pouch success is pretty high, so 96.3% at five years, 93.3% at 10 years, and 92.1% at 20 years. So this is important to let our patients know about that you know this is a viable option that should be considered um, if a patient's really having a difficult time achieving remission uh, with our current uh, therapies available. So when you're talking to a patient about what they should expect after the ileal pouch and anal anastomosis, there is a difference in the frequency of bowel movements after. Um, so they can have a, a new normal daytime stool frequency, about five to six bowel movements a day. There can be an increase in nocturnal bowel movements and possible small increases in incontinent episodes. However, quality of life is generally unchanged and work is not affected by surgery um, in 83% in this one study. So overall, quality of life is significantly still improved compared to preoperatively. So in summary, um, the treatment of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis has evolved to earlier, more aggressive therapy and reliance on mucosal healing, and this is that treat-to-target approach. Patients with extensive bowel involvement Fistulizing disease or deep ulcers in the bowel should receive a combination of biologic therapy with immunomodulator from the start. So biologic therapy usually uh, being anti-TNF therapy. Um, despite better Crohn's disease treatments, more than 50% of patients still require an intestinal resection, um, but, but treating patients earlier may decrease that, um, that, that percentage. Surgery is not a cure for Crohn's disease, and the majority of patients will have recurrence after surgery, so it's important to continue to monitor patients after surgery. And postoperative treatment should be initiated in patients that have a high risk for recurrence. So thank you for participating in the CME activity, and please do not forget to take the post-test and complete the evaluation to receive CME credit. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by RMEI Medical Education, LLC, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And this activity is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Coherus Biosciences, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.